Jack, Levi. The Book Club from Hell. Hello everyone, this is Jack with The Book Club from Hell, a hoax podcast slash performance art project which got out of control, initially intended to reveal the absurdity of playing court jester to strangers over the internet, but which has instead proven to be the seed of a new millenarian religious movement. Making fun of the social sciences is nothing new, and isn't particularly difficult. As well as valuable published works of intellectual depth, there is a sea of sewage, of poorly conceived of and poorly researched academic papers. Not that this is unique to the social sciences, but there's a wackiness to bad social sciences papers which you don't find so much in the harder sciences. The conceptual penis as a social construct was a 2017 hoax research paper published in Cogent Social Sciences, a pay-to-publish academic journal. Peter Bogossian and James Lindsay, the authors of this intentionally absurd paper, and two fairly obnoxious r-slash-atheism types, intended to disprove gender studies as a field by having such a paper published. While I don't think that this aim was achieved, the fact that it was published is more an indictment on pay-to-publish journals than gender studies, the paper works very nicely as a piece of satire, capturing perfectly the word-salad approach to academia unique to the dregs of the social sciences world. I also want to give a shout-out to all the people encouraging us by sending us money over Patreon. You're all champions. And Levi and I are collecting your questions, which we'll answer in a future episode. So, enjoy. <laughs> this is... This was quite a funny hoax. I think it... They were trying to imitate the Sokel hoax. Which is when, like, the, uh, it's the, the, this physics professor, Adam Alan Sokol, from New York University and UCL in 96, submitted an article to Social Text, which is, like, this academic journal of cultural studies. And it was which called... Which we should read as well. <laughs> Transgressing the Boundaries Towards a Transformative Hermeneutics of Quantum Gravity, where basically he... He just... He massaged the personal and ideological egos of the um of the peer reviewers for the article at that academic journal by basically saying that quantum gravity is this linguistic construct and a social construct and can be understood and it can be understood through postmodernist theory and that postmodernist theory can make accurate quantitative predictions about quantum gravity using it and that was quite a funny hoax because apparently it was a, or still is, a respected social sciences journal. And he, I, I won't be able to understand it because it involves a bunch of physics, but apparently the physics in it was intentionally just nonsensical. It's just, just complete garbage. Yeah, the good thing about being somebody who knows fuck all about physics is that you couldn't tell the difference anyways. Like, I wouldn't be able to tell the difference whether I read a quantum, actual quantum physics or like the, the transgressing the boundaries. <laughs> Yeah, and in the fallout of this, part of the criticism was that the journal didn't hire a physics reviewer It's externally. So the, the two reviewers who went through it were trained in the social sciences, so they probably had as much clue about quantum gravity as I do. Which to, is to, to say be they frank, were leading Full disclosure, Jack, if I were Jack to read, a, if a, I were to read a lot of that stuff, I would have no idea what was going on, unless he did something... So obviously absurd, people, like just made basic know that Jack, arithmetical errors. Fact, I, I wouldn't know. Jack, in fact, has a postdoctorate degree in quantum gravity. Little known fact. Exactly. My name's Stephen Hawking. <laughs> uh, it was all an act. 
the wheelchair, <laughs> my death. <laughs> I'm still around. Being I just got into podcasting instead of physics. <laughs> Wanted a clean break. Start again, you know. So this, uh, this one is called The Conceptual Penis as a Social Construct. Yeah. Uh, 2017? Yeah, it's from 2017. And I think this paper was trying to imitate Alan Sokol's paper. What was happening in the whole, like, culture wars at the time? You know, is this the current round of culture wars uh, that's come to head in the last couple of years? That probably started right around... To set, like the early 2010s, right? And it yeah, was sort of I'd not that so. big a thing whilst we were in undergrad. But then I felt like sort of it was, I late undergrad, while we were early in undergrad, grad, it was definitely brewing and you could feel it coming. It was brewing. And for it sure. was at that stage, it was making the jump from Tumblr to real life. Oh, fucking Tumblr. What a cesspool. <laughs> yep. The thing is, I remember reading this sort of language on Tumblr, like, probably in, you know, 2010, 2011, and thinking, wow, this is pretty out there. And then as, as university wore on, I began seeing that sort of language more and more in real life. And that was a very strange experience. Hey, that's so interesting, like, like online communities as epicenters of like uh, larger cultural changes. What if, what, if, what if our Discord is the epicenter of like some larger cultural change? What if we uh, end up precipitating like the Evolian revolution? In Western society. (laughs) (laughs) I think I could certainly indulge in my messianic impulses a bit more. (laughs) It was a really interesting time, though, watching that happen. Well, yeah, we watched it happen in real time because you saw the Tumblrization of the left and the 4chanization of the right. (laughs) While we were studying at uni, which was so strange. So we were in um, biomedicine. And yeah. <clears throat> it being a, a physical science has, I don't know what, I don't, I hope to God this crap hasn't penetrated into biomedical sciences. Um, oh, it, it had. While I, while I was in med, it definitely had. We had a... Um, in medicine. but Yeah, we in, had a student like, conference each year. Virology. And towards the end of my degree, either the penultimate or the last year of it, the keynote speaker was a fat rights activist to a group oh, really? of... Yeah, a group of MD students who in large part said that... And what that did they say? Me- medicine was fatphobic because something like fatphobia is a social construct and so should not be judged through a medical lens. And it's like, yeah, mate, if you have type 2 diabetes and plaques in your coronary arteries, that, that is not socially constructed. You're yeah, just please die explain soon. that to, to your fucking pancreas. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <Look. laughs> Turn that to your islet cells who are burned to the fuck out. <laughs> Yeah, that's really strange because um, surely, like, doctors, you know, presumably some of your former classmates have now gone on to potentially be working in Syndrome X-related specialties, Um, or even GPs. I mean, they're going to be working with people with those issues. They're not being fatphobic. They're trying to help. (laughs) They're trying to help these people... uh, not die an early death that's I, and fucking like late stage diabetes is not a fun thing to have no it's awful the thing is though a lot of the a lot of the fat rights stuff tends to come from people who are young enough that they can get away with being 
very overweight or being quite insulin resistant and things and like that. And then you that. see those like memes. I see these memes on like, you know, like whatever, some person getting wrecked. Uh, it's like, you know, this 35-year-old fat rights activist saying that, you know, medicine is fat phobic or whatever and, you know, all this body positivity stuff. And it's like dies of a heart attack at age 36. <laughs> Some, yeah, something like that. And these people like, tend to be a whole lot less photogenic when they've you know had both legs amputated below the knee. Yeah, they don't mention that stuff. So, but what about is there something valid to be said about you know like also at the same time, um, like just heaping shit on people is is uh, it's, it's, this entire podcast is heaping shit on people. So who the fuck am I to say this? <laughs> but <laughs> but but like like just. Uh, it, say, say you got somebody who's like really fat for whatever reason they are, um, and unable to or unwilling to do something about it. Um, and then in addition to that, they feel like horrible about themselves and all that sort of stuff. Is there something valid in in what those people are, are like saying around like um, fat phobia and fat shaming and that sort of stuff? What do you reckon? As a as a yeah, well, with like. With basically any movement that gains some degree of of mainstream currency, there are going to be elements of it which are true. If it were just completely frivolous, then I can't imagine that people would really be interested in it. So it's it it doesn't really help if you just make people feel absolutely terrible about themselves. They need some form of encouragement or positive reinforcement. The thing is. Much of our society, I wonder if this is a new phenomenon or if this has always been the case and it's only, I notice it now about because to say I live the pussification now. of the West? There's, oh, there's the pussification of the West, but additionally, <laughs> this, this inability to really moderate. So it's, people mm. seem to think that, okay, either, either you fat shame and are fat phobic or you accept everything and refuse to tell people that there's anything wrong with how they look their lifestyles their and things like that. Order. Yeah, <laughs> it's you, you want to pick a point in the middle of not saying, "Oh, actually, diabetes is a social construct," and you also don't want to go to the other extreme of just telling fat people that they're all sounds like you're just a space. fucking fence sitting cunt. <laughs> I didn't need to chuck the I didn't need to chuck the c word in there at the end, but nobody likes a fence sitter, Jack. <laughs> No one wants a fence sitter. Okay. Take a side. <laughs> lukewarm. You know, Jesus said, he said, he said, if you're lukewarm, I'll spit you out. I'll spit you out into Mary's mouth. Um, so, don't. <laughs> so don't be lukewarm. All right. With the, let's discuss the subject of today's episode. So a hoax paper submitted to a social science journal by two obnoxious new atheist types. <laughs> Writing under pseudonyms, one of them's published a bunch of books about how God's horrible. Like, just full Richard Dawkins core, that sort of stuff. (laughs) Richard Dawkins core. They initially submitted to to Norma, the International Journal of Men's Studies, but they were rejected from that journal. And so they instead submitted to Cogent Social Sciences, which is a a pay-for-publication journal. Okay, so having published this, the two authors had their grand reveal and um, basically said that the fact that this article got published, and this article is largely nonsense, demonstrates that 
that this, the entire field of gender studies is suspect and, I quote, suffering from a deeply troublesome disease. And I don't think that's the case because this did get rejected from one of the more prestigious journals in the field. And apparently yeah. the reviewers at Norma said that, yeah, most of this paper's nonsense. So they, they actually did their jobs and knocked it back. Yeah. I think a big part of the issue, and they do discuss this in their, their reveal article, but not enough, is that pay-for-publication journals just churn out shit. They're terrible. For people who don't yeah. really know, don't know how a- academia works, you do your research, you write a scientific paper, and you submit it to a journal. And most, most or good journals won't charge you money for submission. Though you'll submit it, they should get, or it's, it's considered good practice to have peer reviewers, so people who are experts in the field will read the, the paper, say if there, there need to be alterations to it, say if it's acceptable or not. You have another type of journal that are basically vanity journals that you send money to, and so obviously their incentive, their economic incentive is just to publish stuff if they get paid to do it. And the quality of publication in those is quite a bit lower. And so this was, this was published in one of those shit journals. Yeah, and it's a whole mill, like, mill industry. Yeah. And so I think, actually, instead of what the, the authors of this, this fake paper claim, that this is a, the fact that this was published is an indictment on gender studies, much more so I'd say it's an indictment on vanity journals. Pay for publication. Yeah, that whole thing is broken. Because the this article is crap. It's very it's very funny because it um <laughs> it it's a very very good satire of of weirder uh, social sciences papers, and it should shouldn't have been published. But it's not the knockout blow against gender studies or something like that that the two authors. No, no, is. definitely not. When I was when I was working at the university. Um, just would get bombarded by requests or invitations, quote unquote, um, by pay to publish journals saying like, we would yeah. like you to submit a publication to whatever bullshit journal. And I think they just spam. I'll just find like the list of emails. Oh, they really do. Get their hands on the list of emails for every university staff at every university in the world, and they'll just like spam all of them and just try to get something. And, um, yeah, because you know, <clears> I still yeah. every now and then Trash. get invitations from them. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I don't even know. It must be, I guess it must be profitable if the people doing it. I don't know. Yeah, this there must be something, something there, but yeah, this is a huge indictment of that. I don't even know anybody who has ever actually really read like a pay to publish journal. What the hell is going on? Do people just do it to just like um f- like buff their their academic publication list or something? I, I really don't know. Maybe maybe it's used to to pad out your CV for people who don't know the ins and outs of academic publishing. Because at least among people who know more about about publishing, it doesn't look good. No, it looks. Like I would I would actively like. Uh, if I were hiring somebody and they had to pay to publish it, I'd like dock them points. Yeah, yeah, it's not a good look. So <laughs> I'm I'm not sure, but I should also say I never got deep 
deep into this sort of academia. So yeah, maybe yeah. there's a place so, for it. Should, so <clears throat> we'll read the abstract and the uh, and the background on the authors and the public interest. Oh, let's let's read the about the authors and the public interest statement first because those are. Oh, yeah, yeah. Abstract about the author's public interest statement. Because particularly the about the author's and the public interest <laughs> statement are some of the funniest bits of this paper. <laughs> All right. Well, I'll go first, I guess. Uh, abstract. Anatomical penises may exist, but as preoperative transgendered women also have anatomical penises, the penis vis-a-vis maleness is an incoherent construct. We argue that the conceptual penis is better understood not as an anatomical organ, but as a social construct isomorphic to performative toxic masculinity. Through detailed post-structuralist discursive criticism and the example of climate change, this paper will challenge the prevailing and damaging social trope that penises are best understood as the male sexual organ and reassign it a more fitting role as a type of masculine performance. (laughs) While I don't think that this is a knockout blow that the the two authors claim it is. I do think it is a very good piece of satire. So I, I love <laughs> they right here. They do the classic thing that I see happening quite often in in social sciences, where because there is an exception to some not even rule but a general conceptual category, therefore that exception allows them to construct this completely different theory and just instantiate that. So the fact that anatomical penis, so say a preoperative transgendered woman might have an anatomical penis, therefore the penis is in no way a symbol of maleness. And I would say that, yeah, there are, there are some people who don't identify as male who have penises, but you would say there is a strong correlation between maleness and having a penis. And just because there, <laughs> is, sure? there are some Very exceptions, relaxed. that doesn't Very completely relaxed. invalidate that. Furthermore, the fact that there are exceptions to that doesn't mean that suddenly this whole construct of the conceptual penis exists, that that doesn't validate that. And I see that done really frequently in the social sciences. I saw this, uh, I was talking to somebody who's a psychologist about this and uh, I didn't really push back on it. I was just more interested in his point of view. But so I was asking him questions where he's saying like, you know, like gender is a social construct. I think it's like gender is a social construct thing and sex or like biological sex. Like I've heard people just try to just basically say like biological sex doesn't exist or like do a reduction to social construction, mm. constructivism. And um, I mean, I, just, I think those people living in la-la land. Um, <laughs> but... Uh, yeah, some of the ways that they used to argue for it was like, oh, well, you know, um, there are hermaphrodites or there are people born with like an XXY, you know, so like a standard XY chromosome for men. And then you can have like these aberrant chromosomal structures like XXY or whatever, or like have a, <clears throat> you know, truncated y, y chromosome or something like that. And they were saying, well, you know, so these things exist. So therefore, you know, being a man is ambiguous. Or I, don't, I can't remember the exact argument. I was like, I was just thinking, yeah, but just because there's aberrations doesn't mean that biological sex doesn't exist or that 
the sort of binary, the standard binary division isn't a valid division. It just means that like a small number of people don't fit into that. <laughs> but like to say that like, yeah, biological sex is a thing is fine. Yeah. Well, it's sort of like saying that because some chickens can't lay eggs, then therefore chickens do not lay eggs. Or that the, the ability to lay eggs is in no way relevant to to like the animal like, of a chicken. Like errors occur. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not saying people are errors, but like, you know, like uh, aberrations occur. Sometimes people are born for XXY, but that's just not the normal thing. <laughs> and that's not the normal thing for billions of years or how many tens of millions of years like mammals or our part of like the animal kingdoms like phylogenic tree has been has been reproducing <laughs> and the vast majority of our ancestors do not have those chromosomal structures it's just the way it is there just there seems to be a lot of sloppy use of language among people who are quite obsessed with the use of language which i find mm. irritating so yeah it's I really think annoying <laughs> there, there are clearly some people who have the internal experience of belonging to a gender other than the one that they were assigned at birth. I and can see the argument that gender is a social construct or like a sociocultural yeah, exactly. thing, like the distinction between gender versus biological sex. Mm-hmm. Like I can, I think there's room for conversation around there. But but what irritates me is oftentimes the people who will say that there's a difference between those two things, which I find, yeah, fine. The, the, the interna- your internal experience might be different to your physical body, but... The people who say that will then oftentimes start creeping towards biological sex is also oh, not creeping. Like it's not creeping, Jack. Like I mean, people undergo in in like just profound body modification to align their physical, like their phenotype, with their subjective experience. <laughs> and there's a no, whole. I'm like, not saying that. What I'm saying is that people who you'll often have people who say that. That gender is constructed, and I think to an extent, like the behaviours yeah. that we ascribe to men and women are social. Yeah, but you have people who do that, and then will then go on to say or imply that there's no such thing as biological sex. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But then when you that. when you push them on <laughs> that, they take refuge in, oh no, I'm only saying that gender is constructed. If people flick between. Those two, oh, kind of like those like two um, arguments for... of gender is constructed and biological sex is constructed based on what's convenient, and I find that really, yeah, 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 yeah. I, I get what you mean. Yeah, that's pretty. I mean, yeah, those people suck. <laughs> that's that's the extent. Anyway, of my how about re- I read refutation <laughs> about the authors, which is quite funny. So, Jamie Lindsay, PhD, and Peter Boyle, EdD represent a dynamic team of independent researchers working for the Southeast Independent Social Research Group, whose mission is obvious in its, na- in its name. While neither uses Twitter, both finding the platform overly reductive, they incorporate careful reading of the relevant academic literature with observations made by searching trending hashtags to derive important social truths with high impact. <laughs> I really like in this that. case, their particular fascination with penises and the ways in which penises are socially problematic especially as a social construct known as a conceptual penis, have opened an avenue to a new frontier in gender and masculinities research that can transform our cultural geographies, mitigate climate change, and achieve social justice. <laughs> and of all of, of all of this paper, I really think the about the authors and the public interest statements are the most obviously <laughs> trollish. 
Yeah, that is that's just <laughs> so clearly a troll. So funny. <laughs> My favorite line is the. <laughs> Uh, researchers work for the Southeast Independent Social Research Group, whose mission is obvious in its name. <laughs> <laughs> it's just the best. I really like their particular fascination with penises <laughs> and the way that penises are socially problematic. <laughs> one of one of our friends, uh, one of our friends, one of my close friends, he'll fucking love that. Yeah. He'll, he'll get around that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's a socially problematic penis. I'm going to tell him that he's socially that his penis is socially problematic. Everybody listening, everybody on the Discord, every man listening to this fucking podcast right now, your penis is socially problematic. <laughs> you want to read the public interest statement? Yeah, public interest statement. Penises are problematic. And we don't just mean medical issues like erectile dysfunction and crimes like sexual assault. As a result of our research into the essential concept of the penis and its exchanges with the social and material world, we conclude that penises are not best understood as the male sexual organ or as a male reproductive organ, but instead as an enactment, oh, sorry, as an enacted social construct that is both damaging and problematic for society and future generations. The conceptual penis presents significant problems for gender identity and reproductive identity within social and family dynamics is exclusionary to disenfranchised communities based upon gender or reproductive identity, is an enduring source of abuse for women and other gender-marginalized groups and individuals, is the universal performative source of, of rape, and is the conceptual driver behind much of climate change. <laughs> I love how they tie this into climate change later. Climate change at the end as a kicker. <laughs> so... Again, how I don't think this is in any way a refutation of gender studies, but <laughs> no, it succeeds as so a piece funny. of satire brilliantly. Just the how it's it's basically social sciences bingo, where climate change is almost it's it, climate change is just the free the free slot. No matter what they're talking about, you you can bet it's going to come. Climate change is going to be part of that. <laughs> yeah, the the only other like hashtag. Like trending word they missed was like colonization. That's a big one. And uh, <laughs> yeah, colonization is big. And I don't think they brought in. Do they bring colonization no, up in this? I area? don't believe so. I mean, unless I'm misremembering. But you know, you know, like I'm from uh, an indigenous uh, polity, and so you know, I've got my gripes with colonization. So you know, <laughs> I, I'm partial to like bashing on some you know like colonists, right? But <laughs> but notwithstanding like my bias. Uh, you can't just like, you know, boil every social issue down to colonization. Now, I was sitting with a, a young woman who's recently graduated from her degree in a, a social science and had started working on a PhD. And she literally, it's like a mind virus. Mind virus can't think of anything else uh, as like a, a conceptual framework through which to like understand the world. And like, She's just saying, like, everything, all social ills are due to colonization. And, and like, it even started raining and it was, like, I don't know, November. And it was really heavy rain. It was just really heavy rain in Melbourne. Really, really heavy rain. And Unusual. <laughs> and, and Unheard of in so, Melbourne. So un and we're like, oh, yeah. It's like, okay, yeah. I mean, it's raining quite heavily, you know. What, what are you going to do about it? And then they started going off about climate change because it's Melbourne. And to be fair... I like these people as people, but this is just where the, the conversation jumped the shark. Firstly, everybody there, except for me, was from the social sciences. And I'm from 
not environmental science. So I don't know the first thing about climate, but they all started chalking up what was going on with that weather event as down to climate change. <laughs> like, you guys don't know the first thing about climate change. And then this one person in particular was like, <laughs> oh, yeah, and climate change, well, that's caused by colonisation as well. Fucking colonisation, this colonisation, that. <laughs> like, I'm like, I can't deal with this. Like, I need to get the fuck out of this. <laughs> it's the thing, it's what I was referencing earlier, how a lot of these, a lot of these, um, what I would regard as fairly frivolous conceptual frameworks, they spread because they do they do have elements of truth to them. It's like, did colonization cause problems? <laughs> yeah. Like that's did not colonization cause that's something, heavy it's rain just in like, That's such a banal statement. It's like, yes, of course it did. But the thing is, just because it's just because it caused problems doesn't mean that you can then construct an entire epistemological framework around finding finding basically the shortest path between a problem and colonization. <laughs> Okay, how can I how can I get between this problem or this thing I don't like and colonization in the fewest number of nodes? Or what is the least distance between those two points? <laughs> but you're giving that them is too much you, Jack, Jack, you're being way too generous. Like there was no explanatory there's no there's no there was no uh mechanism of action. It's just bad thing colonization. There's it's like that that <laughs> that elf meme out of uh, out of South Park is like step one, still the underpants. Step two, question mark. Step three, profit. This is step one, colonization. Step two, question mark. Step three, climate change. There's <laughs> just nothing there. <laughs> All right. How about I, I'll read the introduction? <laughs> oh, yeah. We're, we're like the- 30 minutes in and we're just about to start the intro. <laughs> well, the thing is, because this this paper is interesting sort of in the context within which it exists. It's not interesting in what it presents because it's not the, the sincere beliefs of the people who wrote it. So I think it's, it's most interesting as a way to talk about academia, uh, what I would regard as some of the sillier ways of viewing the world through a progressive lens, that sort of thing. So I'm a, I don't mind going somewhat off topic. Anyway, this, the introduction. The androcentric scientific and meta-scientific evidence that the penis is the male reproductive organ is considered overwhelming and largely uncontroversial. It is true that nearly all male-gendered persons, who are also male at birth, have a genital organ that, among other purposes, carries the duct for the transfer of sperm during copulation. This organ is usually identified as the penis, and for many males it serves the role of their reproductive organ. There are, however, many examples of persons with penises who will not reproduce, including those who have sustained injury or are unable to coerce a mate, are uninterested in producing offspring, are medically infertile, or identify as asexual. While these examples may still constitute males, it is distinctly fallacious to identify their penises as reproductive organs. Furthermore, there are many women who have penises. There are specifically preoperative transgendered women and chromosomal males who choose to identify as women without indicating a desire to transition. And despite damaging cultural tropes against their womanhood and femininity, these constitute critical examples of a human demographic for whom their genital organ, while it may be utilised reproductively in some cases, is not best understood as being a male genital organ. <laughs> in light of these important facts about the wide diversity of human experience of human expression, including when specified to those humans bearing a penile genital organ, conceptualising the penis 
as a specifically male anatomical organ is highly problematic and in critical need of discursive revision. Indeed, the penis vis-a-vis maleness is an incoherent construct. We argue that the conceptual penis is better understood not as an anatomical organ, but as a gender-performative, highly fluid social construct. That's, uh, so basically this entire article is just repeating this point, that not all people with penises use their penises to reproduce, therefore the penis cannot, can in no way be considered an anatomical reproductive organ. And this is, this is the sort of reasoning you do find in some social sciences papers, how, if not rule, then some conceptual category, then the category is completely invalid. Yeah, if I, if I took that introduction, I think that you could find people definitely in, in Melbourne <clears throat> and presumably, you know, isomorphic parts of the Western world, like... Portland. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and if you read that to them, they would agree. They're just like, yeah, that sounds reasonable. So they're kind of like, yeah, yeah. Luring, they're luring you in here because they haven't gone, they haven't jumped the shark yet. <laughs> they haven't they're jumped the shark. I up. would say it's it's very sloppy, and I think well, intentionally sloppy. <laughs> but I think you would find a lot of people who, if they weren't probably if they weren't willing to pick at it, would agree with it. So just saying that because the penis in some people, is not used to reproduce. Therefore, it is in no way a reproductive organ, or it's problematic to understand it as a reproductive organ, I think is silly. <laughs> so there, insofar as you can ascribe a, a teleology to, to creatures which have evolved, like the penis fairly obviously does serve a reproductive function. <laughs> so just because it's not always used in that way doesn't mean that it cannot serve that purpose and is problematic to be regarded as serving that purpose. So it's still very sloppy, but I think you, you yeah, I agree. You could definitely find people who would disagree with it because they hear enough buzzwords and like, oh, yeah, yeah, sure. That sounds good. Two, the conceptual penis. The conceptual penis is the operative representation of the penis in society as it obtains via a variety of performative acts and statements related to and concerning gender. Conceptualization is the best way to understand the penis as the notion of, quote, penis as a male anatomical organ, end quote, suffers typically androcentric and metascientific limitations and errors as it is both overly reductive in failing to represent the full reality of penis-bearing human experiences and incoherent, as the penis itself has little or nothing to do with gender. Little or nothing, Jack. <laughs> uh, <laughs> consequently, <laughs> consequently, what coherent role can a monolithic concept like the penis hope either to achieve or to describe for preoperative and non-operative male-to-female trans women and post-operative female-to-male trans men who choose to retain their identity as women? Likewise, what meaning can the anatomical penis as a male organ possibly hold for gender-fluid individuals or certain other individuals within the queer community? In the paradigm of the dominant penis-centred narrative, we find these questions <laughs> intrinsically unanswerable. <laughs> the dominant penis-centred narrative. That pretty much just described, like, my relationship with my girlfriend. No. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I should bring that one. It's dominant penis centered narrative. 
Uh, it is also factually incorrect to associate the anatomical penis with male reproductivity, as noted above, and thus even with healthy male sexuality, as any expression should be deemed healthy, while many other forms of male sexuality that are normative are distinctly problematic and unhealthy. For example, men's rights advocates appropriating the legal, quote, no, not voluntary, but still reasonable, quote, standard for search and seizure to issues involving sexual consent. That is, sorry, some of these sentences are really big. (laughs) That is, the conceptual penis is a performative social construct, and it is one that is isomorphic to an especially toxic strain of masculinity. Still. Yeah, I really like how they go that they they do this... um, It's it's this free associational style of reasoning where they go, okay, <laughs> so Jordan Peterson. <laughs> we'll just assume that the concept of an anatomical penis is problematic, which I don't think it is. I mean, it's still <laughs> part of this is the how. Oh, I'm assuming it's it's satirizing the sloppy use of the word male. How people use it to describe gender and and biological sex. In terms of biological sex, like the penis is the reproductive organ like you don't really reproduce <laughs> with a Using different organ finger. if you're biologically like your toes your toes yeah like they're just <laughs> what is as, it like? as they said earlier it is it is the duct for reproductive <laughs> material like the, the sperm's got to go through your vas deferens down your it's urethra got, well, it's, it's got to go through a duct you do need to specify a duct yeah which duck is and I guess, the question? So I, I guess because it often seems that people in gender studies are particularly enamoured of exceptions to rules. That seems to be most of, most of the field. So I guess they could say, oh, well, you can actually take a sperm sample directly from the testicles and impregnate someone with it. Sure. But that's, all, that's again, the sort of reasoning that is satirised in this fake article. Of, of finding something that holds almost all of the time, but then finding a, an exception to that and then saying, okay, this invalidates everything else. It's also quite funny how they go, um, so the, the conceptual penis is isomorphic to toxic hypermasculinity. <laughs> so they basically just say, your conceptualization of your penis as an element of masculinity is synonymous or isomorphic with toxic hypermasculinity. And again, it's, it's the sort of leap that you often see in, in the articles that this one is satirizing. How they'll. So good. They will use this free associational thinking to cast the people they don't like in the worst possible light. It's if, if you identify your masculinity with your penis, then you are necessarily toxically hypermasculine. hypermasculine. So I'll I'll finish off this section. Still, because this is fucking fantastic, this paragraph. (laughs) Still, even as a social construct. This is one of the the ones that just seemed like (laughs) such an obvious troll. The conceptual penis is hopelessly dominated by recalcitrant social constructions that favor hypermasculine interpretations of the penis as a notion unjustly associated with high male value. Schwab and Volkman, 2001. Sorry, can I just jump in? Because they they do cite a lot of um, other articles. 
Some of them exist, and some of them I could just find no evidence for. <laughs> like they're just making up references. <laughs> so good. Um, many cisgendered hypermasculine males, for instance, seem to identify those aspects of their masculinity upon which they most obviously depend with the notion that they carry their penis as a symbol of male power, domination, control, capability, desirability, and aggression. Parentheses, the National Coalition for Men, quote, compiled a list of synonyms for the word penis. These include the terms beaver basher, cranny axe, custard launcher, dagger, heat-seeking moisture missile, mayo-shooting hot dog gun, pork sword, and yogurt shotgun. (laughs) Based upon an appreciable corpus of feminist literature on the penis, this troubling identification results in an effective isomorphism linking the conceptual penis with toxic hypermasculinity. So what I said <laughs> earlier about them making up references, the, the National Coalition for Men does have an article where they list out different words for penis and they do include terms like custard launcher and mayo shooting hot dog gun i find it so it's just so good it's such good satire that their evidence it's basically at least to my mind what they're satirizing is this real tendency among progressives to identify people who don't agree with them with just the the worst faith uh, model models of their enemies of, in their head canon, just the the worst possible interpretation of people who disagree with them, in which and and this is just like that the the evidence that they're citing for for um to to back up their point that people who identify maleness with an anatomical penis are all hypermasculine and hate women and things like that. The evidence is quoting a, a shitty article by the National Coalition for Men, which seems to be just this this um, support group for a bunch of basement dwelling neckbeards. Like, it's, it's just it's just such spot on satire. I can I can do a little bit better. I can do a little bit better than than this. I want to extend this list with one one of the greatest um, f- songs of of the 2000s, um, Foxtrot Uniform, Charlie Kilo by the Bloodhound Gang. Vulcanize the, the whoopee stick in the ham wallet. Cattle prod the oyster ditch with the lap rocket. Batter dip the cranny axe in the gut locker. Retrofit the pudding hatch, ooh la la, with the boink swatter. You heard it here first. Bloodhound gang. Hypermasculine. Cannonball the fiddle code with the pork steeple. (laughs) (laughs) The pork steeple. Sorry, Sorry, I'll let you you do it. This is a good... Do you want me to read out 2.1? McKinnon. Yeah, yeah. Now, remember... Remember who was elected in, to, in the 2016 presidential and who, who smashed the, smashed the uh, drained the swamp? Who was draining the, <laughs> draining the granny swamp at this point in history? <laughs> I also want to say, while I was reading this, I was thinking, wow, this reads a lot like Judith Butler. And then they started quoting Judith <laughs> Butler in this section. 
<laughs> we should. Cover yeah, Judas apparently Butler, Ed fucking hates Judas Butler. Wait, is it Judas? No, he hates um. Yeah, he he does not like. He's complained about Judith Butler to me on a few occasions. I've read little Judith Butler, but at least from what I've read, she has this incredible ability to say what are quite often fairly banal statements, like oh, yeah, men commit Butler. violence against women. Like thing, things, it's like, oh yeah, that's a real revelation. It's like, yes, we know that happens. Yeah, it's not yeah, a good thing. Happens. We know, but Bad. she she manages to say that. Over the course of about 20 pages in the most impenetrable prose possible. She's very strongly influenced by Foucault. Mm, mm. Yes, and mm. another person who yeah. was not open to being transparent, <laughs> easily readable. <laughs> a lot of those continental types, though, seem to take it as a badge of honour if they can say the most straightforward thing in as circuitous way as possible. They can use as many words as possible to say as little as possible. Yeah, I just bought the Archaeology oh, of yeah, Knowledge it's like a fucking year 12 student. Writing an English essay, just cracking open oh, the trash, 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 trash. I would never, I wouldn't, I'd never want to read anything I wrote like when I was in high school. I just can't, <laughs> can't imagine how bad it was. Probably terrible. Um, yeah, Archaeology of Knowledge. That, that one is sitting there on my bookshelf, just like I look at it and I grimace and I just think at some point I will get around to reading this book. But then I try to read like a sentence or something, and it's just horrible. <laughs> the thing is, with a lot of these continental people, like Foucault, he says a lot of things that I think are quite worthwhile. He just says it in such a fucking annoying way. A really annoying way, yeah. But the, the order of things, for example, I think is worth reading, and I'm happy I read it, and I want to read it again because I don't think I got everything out of it. But, and he could have written it so much better. Anyway. He got, he got points for writing like that in his... Uh, socio-political milieu. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, It was definitely, or still is, the fashion to write in the most insufferable way possible. <laughs> anyway. Inasmuch as masculinity is essentially performative, so too is the conceptual penis. The penis, in the words of Judith Butler, can only be understood through reference to what is barred from the signifier within the domain of corporeal legibility. The penis mm, should yes. not be understood mm. as an honest mm. expression of the performer's intent should it be presented in a performance of masculinity or hypermasculinity. Thus, <laughs> the isomorphism <laughs> between the conceptual penis and what's referred to throughout discursive feminist literature as toxic hypermasculinity is one defined upon a vector of male cultural machismo braggadocio with the conceptual <laughs> penis playing the roles of subject, object and verb of action. <laughs> the result of this trichotomy of roles is to place hypermasculine men both within and outside of competing discourses, whose dynamics, as seen via post-structuralist discourse analysis, enact a syst systematic interplay of power in which hypermasculine men use the conceptual penis to move themselves from powerless subject positions to powerful ones, confer Foucault, 1972. This is such Subject, a spot-on satire. <laughs> penis to penis, Emma penis. <laughs> what they're saying is that certain men use, really use their, their self-conception of being men as a way to make themselves feel more powerful. That's what they're saying. It's not that complicated, but <laughs> this is just such good satire of the prose these sort of people use where such a commonplace is rendered almost unintelligible 
through just absolute shit tier. I writing. just came up with a with a uh, with an amazing addition to the app. It's so good. I'm going to write it on Sticky Note. That's how you know I'm serious about my technology. I've got tech. I've got fucking post-it notes, and none of that like <laughs> none of that like <clears throat> black and yellow brand shit. This is actual post-it, you know. So, oh, the fancy um, stuff. Yeah, I'm one level down from 3M, but still pretty good. <laughs> so that's how you know uh, you're moving up in the world. Yeah, yeah, I'll get there eventually. Um, okay. We need a pay-to-publish arm of academic literature satire. That's that's <laughs> what I'm floating as a potential thing. Could we could we basically create a an academic publication that is entirely based on satire? And could we build up like a thing like this? <laughs> I don't know. I'm going to write this down. Academic, academic. That's a academic really good idea. It'd be the most bizarre form of performance art. Pay. Have to conferences. Publish. Is this like a like what could you call it? The journal of um, the journal of something. Jack and Levi's little cult. They call their cogent social studies. We need to come up with a funny name for our mm. pay to publish. Um, Evolian <laughs> journal. <laughs> <laughs> Should I jump in? I'll jump in. I'll hop, swap out. Yeah, yeah. I'll put that there. Okay. Okay, machismo. So we're still in section 2.1, machismo and braggadocio. I'll do like two paragraphs and we'll swap. Um, machismo is essentially aggressive male pride, whereas braggadocio is a quality of arrogant boastfulness. These together can be taken as a concrete description of the typical performative expression of maleness and hegemonic entrenched male power dynamics through the object of the penis. As the socially masculine mind conceptualizes it and the heteronormative female mind too typically has been socially indoctrinized to fetishize it. Through self-objectification in the conceptual penis, hypermasculinity, which abhors weakness in all its forms, seeks to reposition itself from a powerless subject position to a powerful one. Often, hypermasculine behavior therefore centers upon boasting, even if falsely, about size, <laughs> about size, potency, and desirability. And many socially problematic gender demonstrative behaviors defining both toxic masculinity and rape culture emanate from the machismo braggadocio isomorphism as a form of social staging applied to the objective conceptual penis. <laughs> <laughs> potency <laughs> these are precisely the practices that systematically form the objects of which they speak mentioned by Foucault's first delineation of post-structuralist discursive analysis just, just so many words <laughs> just so many fucking words I love that again I think more or less what they said is that men brag about the, <laughs> the size the and potency <laughs> of their the dickies <laughs> Which it's like, yeah, I mean, listen to basically any rap And most of the song will just be describing the sexual prowess of the person currently rapping And how it is superior to your sexual prowess There's, there's this 21 Savage song that uh, that opens up, I think it's called X And, and, it, and it opens up, it goes, it goes, yeah, yeah, yeah Because 21 Savage sounds like he's always fucking high on codeine He's like, yeah 
10 bad bitches in a mansion. And there's like some repeating theme throughout all these music. <laughs> 10 bad bitches in a mansion. Yeah, fuck your bitch. <laughs> fuck this bitch. My ex pissed off at me because I fucked another bitch. <laughs> yeah, 21. Sure. <laughs> it's 21. Perfect. <laughs> Sorry, this article's saying. strength really is in, in satirizing <laughs> this way of writing. That's, that's where they nailed it. Nowhere more does this problematic construction compare than with the, quote, hegemonic masculinity and cultural construction. Oh, this is so quote, good. End quote. Presented in the, <laughs> in the quote, essence of the hard-on, POTS 2000. <laughs> <laughs> POTS 2000 illustrates that the functioning or lack thereof of the conceptual penis, quote, demonstrates the inscription on individual male bodies of a coital imperative. The surface of, surface of the male body interfuses with the culture to produce the fiction of a dysfunctional, non-penetrative male heterosexuality, end quote. This is clear power dynamical <laughs> repositioning to alleviate the internal psychological struggle of weakness via hypermasculinity and an essential fear of weakness that characterizes hypermasculinity itself. We therefore further agree with Potts that, quote, by relinquishing the penis's executive position in sex, Male bodies might become differently inscribed and coded for diverse pleasures beyond the phallus slash penis, end quote. And we insist that understanding the objective isomorphic mapping between phallus and conceptual penis is a necessary discursive element to changing the prevailing penile social paradigm. The constructed intersection of the anatomical penis and the performative conceptual penis defines the problematic relationship masculinity presents for male bodies and their impacts upon women in our pre-post-patriarchal societies. Pre-post-patriarchal society is just such a good line. <laughs> so good. They've got some zingers. It's very good. That, I, I think they've also done a very good job of the like of emulating not just the word salad, but just the, the, um, the length. I, I don't know. Just like how fucking long the sentences are and how many sub clauses and stuff there are. It's, just, it's so hard to read. Yeah. <laughs> and it's not just word salad, but buzzword salad. But how they keep salad, throwing yeah. in buzzwords. <clears throat> it's almost like one of those inkblot tests where much of, I'm not actually sure they're saying very much with a lot of these paragraphs, but it's got enough buzzwords and enough hints at things that I've read in serious papers that you, your, your brain starts assembling a meaning within it. So I'll continue. Um, in addition, and then, and then and we'll swap after this paragraph. In addition to self-objectification, the conceptual penis can intrinsically can intrinsically to the machismo braggadocio isomorphic map express itself as the subject of toxic masculinity. The hypermasculine mental mentality often conflates the socialized male individual as an inscribed and embodied extension of his conceptual penis. Through his conflation, the hypermasculine male becomes the object to his conceptual penis and expresses himself and his core sense of identity in terms of his conceptual penis as subject. Oh, excuse me. Paxton and Scammeron. <laughs> illustrate this phenomenon <laughs> clearly in the context of our contemporary masculinely biased approaches to economic theory. They write, quote, the premise of neo-capitalist materialist theory implies that sexual identity has an objective value. Therefore, 
The premise of post-capitalist sublimation implies that sexuality serves to oppress the underprivileged. Many discourses concerning a self-justifying totality may be found. This, they argue, follows from Lacan's incisive observation that, quote, sexual identity is part of the economy of truth, end quote. The conceptual penis taken as the subject often has the consequence of promoting oppression of the underprivileged by the misunderstanding that male sexual identity has objective value, particularly in repositioning the powerless hypermasculine male subject as powerful in and by means of his conceptual penis. This value is typically defined by the machismo braggadocio penile isomorphism between inscriptive objective <laughs> object and discursive, thus prescriptive subject. <laughs> fucking win this battle between me and that fucking sentence <laughs> i do like the the narrative arc of this paper too how as it goes on it gets less and less coherent how at the start it's the <laughs> most temperate and now it's just it's just turning into mush <laughs> i think what they're saying is that the conceptual penis so this this collection of conditioned male behaviors is used by hypermasculine men to convert their feelings of inadequacy into feelings of power, and that conversion carries economic value, which hypermasculine men mistake as objective value, and that oppresses the underprivileged. I, th- I think that's. <laughs> I think that's what they're saying. <laughs> Uh, so do you want to okay. go from the next? Do you want to? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll keep going. When hypermasculine males see themselves as potent, dominant, controlling, or desirable, it is often an artifact of the machismo of the machismo braggadocio isomorphism acting to make the conceptual penis the subject of their performed sense of identity. Cameron and de Selby note, in a sense, the subject is interpolated into a pre-culturable a pre-cultural de-appropriation that includes sexuality as a reality. This is clearly experienced via the machismo braggadocio constructural isomorphism between the conceptual penis and pervasive toxic hypermasculine mentalities and behaviours. For example, this can be seen in male bragging about their sexual conquests and boasting about their sexual performance, but also in male language with speech acts like I gave it to her and she couldn't get enough of it. In the latter case, the noun it turns the objective conceptual <laughs> penis into the perceived subject of female experience, further objectifying the conceptual penis vis-a-vis male gender performance. The conceptual penis thereby becomes a de-appropriative tool through which the penis as subject makes the, in brackets, <laughs> male sexuality a potent reality in the hypermasculine I really like mind. Penis I also really enjoy, as this, <laughs> as this article goes on, they, their punctuation gets stranger and stranger, how they just start throwing random brackets and square brackets around different words. <laughs> I also really enjoy the, the bit where they say, so, with respect to she couldn't get enough of it, the, they say the noun it turns the objective conceptual penis into the perceived subject of female experience. And the, the reason they can say this is because they've denied that the anatomical penis has any relevance. So, they, 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 they do their mental gymnastics to make, 
to explain why women apparently feel a penis during the act of sex with a man, they they say it. The reason this happens is because of the objective is the objectification of the conceptual penis vis-a-vis male gender performance instead of the anatomical existence of a penis. Anyway, it's it's obviously a troll, but it's so funny because it's so aptly it so aptly reflects these bizarre mental contortions that some social scientists put down on paper. It's great. It's it's so much fun. <laughs> Do you want to keep on going with the next paragraph? Yeah, I'll keep going. Nice. The ultimately performative nature of hypermasculinity via the machismo braggadocio isomorphism is most evident in male behaviours typical of many men to reject emotional expressions as feminine. For example, compassion is generally avoided under machismo braggadocio subject performances, as are emotional expressions other than dominant aggressive ones like anger and irascibility. As Chef points out, the hypermasculine pattern leads to competition rather than connection between persons. The performative nature of male-on-male competition is reflected into the conceptual penis via the machismo braggadocio isomorphism, not only through the behaviour, but additionally in phrases regarding toxic hypermasculine competitiveness like pissing contest, in which the winners are determined by which hypermasculine person is able to project a stream of urine the furthest, often from a height, and dick measuring contest. Which needs no elaboration to unveil the direct impact of performative machismo braggadocio competitiveness. This is so good because it says again something that's quite banal. It's yes, many men, at least in Western societies, are less inclined to be to be open about their emotions and tend to reject emotional expressions which aren't dominant or aggressive. That's, I, I think that is largely true. But they, they, they then use this as a jumping-off point to start overanalyzing terms like kissing <laughs> contest. It's just so, so good. Oh, that's so funny. So funny. This is just the heart, this is the heart of a lot of the, the, the studies forms of academia. Quite a, quite where they take things that are not really revelatory, that in the West men often have a problem with expressing emotions, which aren't things like anger. I don't know what you're talking about. I'm great at expressing my emotions. Jack. Overanalyze it. I don't know what you're talking about. Express my emotions <laughs> all the time. And if you fucking say otherwise, I'll punch you in the head. <laughs> <laughs> I'll get on a plane. I'll get on the plane. Europe. Fly to Europe right now. And I will express my emotions to you at the end of my fist. <laughs> to express myself. <laughs> to express myself. <laughs> and then we can have like a dick measuring contest or something. And I'll, I'll express my or emotions. Or a pissing more. contest. <laughs> you could probably do a pissing contest over Zoom though. Yeah, we could. So long as, so, so long as you had a stand, so you did it next to a, a ruler or something or a tape measure. See who could get the highest. Yeah. Also, this uh, this is a nice preamble to um, Jack and I would like to announce that we're now we've now got an OnlyFans. <laughs> and if you would like to see our dick mm. measuring contest, I think we've our, announced our, this in several episodes. Pissing. Yeah. Well, we're, well, I need to pimp it some more. If you want to see Jack and I, um, <clears throat> measure our dicks, have sex, on, and and have hot sex, um, then go to OnlyFans.com forward slash machismo braggadocio. 
Uh, I, I think you, you take one more paragraph uh, because I think this next paragraph is really good. And I think <laughs> this is one of the funniest ones. <laughs> and then I'll take the paragraph after. <laughs> so this is one of the paragraphs which is satirizing the overreading into the use of language. I do think how we use language is important. It both reflects our inner experience and also shapes our inner experiences, but it is something that people in what I regard as the sillier parts of social science, just read too much into. You can go too far with this form of analysis. Anyway. You just cook your brain. (laughs) I quote, We see further linguistic evidence for this phenomenon as hypermasculine men often use the word dick, casual slang for the penis, as... (laughs) It needs to be explained. (laughs) As an actionable verb. To To dick. dick someone might mean to take advantage of them Uh. or to have sex with them. Depending upon the constructual context of the application, the inherent connotations of dicking and dicking over to rape culture are, here, obvious, but run too far afield for our purposes to develop independently. As an aside, this is something that you see so often, how in these sort of articles, people will often just rove very far afield to autistically overanalyze the use of some phrase. But then in other areas, which you, which I wouldn't really regard as any more unimportant to the central thesis than, you know, just some fishing expedition the authors went on two paragraphs ago, they will say, no, 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 we're very academically rigorous here and w- this runs too far afield for this paper. Anyway. How many of these sorts of papers have you actually fucking often read, take advantage of the, this penis as verb surjection to express themes of male power and dominant male sexuality, confer the frequent use of the sexually objectifying hypermasculine phrase, I, I dick her, her good. good. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I read that exact phrase in Practical Female Psychology for a Practical Man. <laughs> just such a, God, that book was bad. I just, I just love that. People should listen to our episode on that if they haven't. <laughs> I just love it. It pairs very nicely with this, <laughs> this fake article. It is genuinely funny that people say they did someone. Dick her good. good. It's a, do <laughs> not say that. People who actually talk like that. Like, <laughs> people who, who say that sincerely I dicked her so like sort of people. Oh no no In in practical female psychology I think they said dick, I dicked her good But they particularly liked the phrase Sex her good That's right they are sexed her good Yeah so dumb, it's just, so dumb. That's just weapons grade cringe <laughs> It's feel like anybody who's saying I dicked her good or I sexed her good is just like, um, probably not. Allowing hypermasculine males to intuit the interplay of various discourses behind their subject positions and to shift them accordingly within specific settings, especially imagined and real sexual encounters with real and virtual women or other men as applicable. I dicked him good. If they also conflate with expressing power dynamics over other men, as exemplified in the phrase, I dicked him over, which presents iconic male hegemonic thinking, as per Duncanson. Fantastic. I love that paragraph. I think that might be my favourite It was an extended mediation on on the verb to to dick, dick, or the (laughs) phrasal verb to dick over. I dicked her good. (laughs) (laughs) 
dicked him good. I dicked do you want, him do you want to keep going? Yeah. This. Oh, do you do you, do you want to read the part about man spreading? This this was really so good. Fucking good. Okay. This this part was fantastic. This tendency is easily explained by extrapolation upon uh, McElwain, who demonstrates that clearly that quote sexual identity is fundamentally used in the service of hierarchy. However, according to Werther, it is not so much sexual identity that is fundamentally used in the service of hierarchy, but rather the dialectic and hence the defining characteristic of sexual identity. The subject is contextualized into a subcultural desituationism that includes sexuality as a reality. End quote. It is by using the conceptual penis as an actionable verb. <laughs> To conceptual penis. <laughs> the conceptual penis as an actionable verb that hypermasculine men enforce the social hierarchy that oppresses and deinstitutionalizes others to the perceptual evaluation, elevation of themselves. It is illustrated clearly in Kubrin and Weitzner in their analysis of misogyny in rap music, in which they observe, quote, content analysis identified five gender related things <laughs> in the body of music. Themes that contain messages regarding essential male and female characteristics and that espouse a set of, uh, of, uh, of conduct norms for men and women, end quote. It is also observable in the hypermale performative behavioral trope of man-spreading, that is, inconsiderately spreading his legs too widely in public, for example, on public transport such as planes, trains, and automobiles, especially subways and buses. The usual excuse given for man-spreading is centered directly in the conceptual penis as a male social discourse. The anatomical <laughs> penis and testicles are attributed as needing space in order to facilitate the male individual's, quote, comfort. This behavior seen from the perspective of the conceptual penis as a performative social construct is clearly a dominating occupation of physical space akin to raping the empty space around him. That is best understood <laughs> by the machismo braggadocio isomorphism to toxic masculinity. <laughs> this is one of this was one of the best parts of this paper. It's raping the empty space. People around don't him. talk about man spreading much anymore, do they? That was it was, was like a, a little blip for a few years, and then people lost interest. It was like a little blip. It's sucker how people got all. You know, it's like you don't hear that term mansplaining anymore. Oh, I haven't. I hear it pop up every now and then, but not not so much. If Mostly when told I accuse me I was other people explaining explaining things, I would I would I would really have to resist telling them to go fuck themselves. <laughs> I'd have to resist pulling out my conceptual penis and, <laughs> and using raping it. the empty air around them. You're raping by spreading the space my legs. Around. People got so tied up in knots over man spreading. It's like, yeah, if you're on if you're on the tram or something, don't don't have your legs like. Sitting at 180 <laughs> degrees to I'm each so other. Like, don't do this. that. Don't be a shithead. I'm, I'm a man spreading dipshit. <laughs> I dick the fuck out of the air around me <laughs> on public transport. <laughs> I also wonder, like, to what extent when people do that on the bus or on the tram or something, are they doing it because they think that their dick needs more space? And how much do you think is just they're not thinking about it much? Yeah, they just have no sense of, like, uh, social awareness. <laughs> That's all. I don't think they're giving their dick space. <laughs> I think they're just slouching. I guess. I guess people could say then. Oh well, the reason why they they can get away with not having social awareness is because society encourages men to take up more space and women to take up less. Yeah, but Bronze Age would say that I that's guess. a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So. 
I'll keep them but, going. I'll finish off this section yeah. and then you can jump in. I'm, I'm glad that they got man spreading in there and then described it as rape, which is... <laughs> raping the empty space. Again, animal. it is, it is <laughs> so something good. that you often see in the more frivolous social sciences, how they've just completely devalued the word rape to mean basically anything they don't like. It's like how people just describe everything they don't like as Hitler. <laughs> everything they don't like is Hitler or rape. Everybody's a it's fascist. It's like point those two words to stop meaning raped. anything. Um, yeah. Colonisation causes climate change. Colonisation and hypermasculinity. But... I'm jumping ahead. Let me finish off this paragraph. It's the holy tr- the, holy the holy tetralogy. <laughs> so many good of, <laughs> of rape, climate change, colonialism, and fascism. <laughs> and oh, you know what they didn't get in here? Neoliberalism. Did they get in neoliberalism? No, I don't think they That's did. That's true. That's pretty impressive. This... These guys. Oh no, got... 2017. People talking about neoliberalism a lot. Oh, they've been fucking talking about neoliberalism for fucking decades. It's just like as soon as I hear so, I I have this bad habit of when somebody. Just says, oh, that thing is why you're neoliberal. I almost switch off and I have to be like, no, Levi, don't switch off because they might actually have a genuine thing to say. And I try to listen. And then, um, but I, it's almost like a flag of like somebody just like, uh, what is it? Somebody called it, um, is it dog whistling? No, is it dog? It's like, it's some, it's some term for like using language to signal that you're a part of a group. Or like you know the language of the subculture, and so you're like signaling. I think some some people will use dog whistling to mean that. Dog whistling is also one of those terms that oftentimes doesn't mean anything. Okay, well that's but what it, I mean. I think it this can be used to mean that. It's like I'm going to criticize this thing as neoliberal, even though it's this is like completely meaningless thing to say. Like I don't know, this fucking coffee and like bagel is really neoliberal. For whatever reason. <laughs> well, describing things as neoliberal, it's just the sort of term that because it is used so often and has come at least in, in common usage to be meaningless or just be like a negatively valenced thing. It, like describing things as woke, I guess. <laughs> to be it fair. It can actually be describing something, but you need... You probably need someone to define what they mean when they say neoliberal or woke or late capitalist or something <laughs> late, like late that. Late stage capitalist, yeah. I probably do this because too those, much those terms can be used to describe real things. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But but you don't always know what someone means when they're using them, so it's often worthwhile having someone actually explain what they mean by those. Just terms anything when they that use the them. if they're left wing, it's like if they don't like something, it's neoliberal or capitalist. And then the flip side is like if there's somebody on the right, like especially the uh, libertarian types, if they don't like something, I'll call it Marxist, or, or these days I'll call it neo-Marxist. <laughs> and, if, and if there's anything Levi doesn't like, I'll call it fiat. <laughs> Fiat statist. <laughs> it's, just, it's just a generic catch-all term. For high something time I don't preference, like. something. Yeah. High time preference. Fiat cucks. It's, it's high time preference diet. <laughs> Slavery coin. We we actually do know someone though who describes. Oh, he's so funny. He's so fiat diet. He's a fucking legend. I love him. <laughs> he's so cool. <laughs> I would. Uh, we should read some of his shit on this show. Maybe I think we should he'd probably his... get angry about it. What? I would say the name of his Substack to shill it, but I think he might get upset about that, so I won't. Oh, yeah. Yeah, fair. <laughs> All right, so do it. Let's, let's punch on. Okay. Machismo is yeah, the yeah. hypermasculine essence, and braggadocio is the hypermasculine expression. 
The penis as a conceptual element of contemporary thought is naturally isomorphic by notion of machismo braggadocio to the most toxic and problematic themes in hypermasculinity. It is important to be clear that none of these themes are applicable to the anatomical penis as they are incoherent to many gender identifications that happen to present a penis as a genital organ. Similarly, none of these themes are applicable to the pre-reproductive penis as they fail to possess relevance for non-reproductive or asexual individuals with a genital penis. The penis is the present uh, sorry. <clears throat> the penis in the present context is thus best best understood as a constructed social object, a discursive conceptual penis utilized for the enactment of prevailing masculine social tropes. And that concept is isomorphic via machismo brocadocio with many of the most problematic themes in toxic masculinity. Now, fuck me, man. I got into like category theory because <laughs> like category theory is like relevant to type systems and programming and shit. And Category theory has this idea of like things. isomorphisms and, and stuff between like mathematical objects and systems. Um, anyways, they these motherfuckers just keep on using this fucking word isomorphic. <laughs> I'm, sick of, I'm sick of this word. <laughs> Stop it. I mean, my guess is that they are using it in a similar way that a lot of other social scientists use it, just, just to mean that it is something that structurally resembles something else or resembles something else in its use yeah yeah, yeah. no I, I think that they they're um they're conceptually raping and this, this is also satire <laughs> <laughs> i also really like how as this paper goes on they start th throwing in more and more just nothing adjectives which are really funny like describing things as discursive <laughs> a discursive conceptual penis in, in this context <laughs> is just meaningless discursive penis <laughs> as as an act of whatever obnoxious uh, aim the authors of this paper had of your disproving gender theory or disproving gender studies they failed I, they were unsuccessful in that but they were very successful in this as a literary piece, the pitch-perfect imitation of the form of prose that, that a lot of these papers are written with is so good. Yeah, and that, that prose is deserving of ridicule. Oh, absolutely. It is just dog shit. <laughs> dog shit, Jack. Very strong opinion. All right. <laughs> I'll, I'll read about climate change and the conceptual thing. <laughs> You heard it here first, Phil. It almost seems catechismic now among certain progressives that you just have to say that climate change is bad all the time. Yeah. It's like, yeah, it's not good. Here's my, it's not, here's my fundamental It's not a good reputation. thing if the climate changes, but it just seems that they need to say it all the time all the time to remain pure. It's like you have to just keep saying it's it. Like and those, if you keep um, saying the words, the climate it's change like, is it's bad, like saying, uh, maybe something good. A rosemary or something. <laughs> Doing your rosemary. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like saying your Hail Marys. Uh, no, here's my climate here's my fun. core refutation of the climate change issue. Climate change is good. <laughs> that's, that's what I'm going to start saying to people. Just like, no, more climate change. Let's let's get it more like it's fucking it's there's you know like I want to go and visit Antarctica. Don't you like warm weather? I, I want to visit Antarctica in the summer. You know, like I reckon it would have great beaches <laughs> if we just melted the ice. So more climate change, faster. <laughs> I wonder if I said that to an actual person who was like bitching about climate change. Um, we need, to bring in, we need to bring other parts of the holy tetralogy 
So you've got you've got to be pro okay, climate change, climate change, pro colonialism. So you, Colonial, we want to we want to colonize an ice free Antarctica. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What climate else? Climate change. I think uh, it's got to be patriarchy. So it's got to be yeah, a strongly yeah. patriarchal okay. so basically society. Basically, we need to re-establish hyperborea. hyperborea. Essentially, we're re-establishing <laughs> hyperborea. <laughs> we need hyperborea too. <laughs> this is a new hyperborea. hyperborea. <laughs> new hyperborea. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's what we want. New hyperborea. Jack and Levi become god kings in new hyperborea. <laughs> Just have a haram of naked women getting dicked down all the time, circling around us. <laughs> it's got to be patriarchal it's got to be that's, um it's got to be neoliberal that's that's the new reactionary thought you just look at all of these things and you just have to be pro them you need to be pro climate change and if you're not you're not a true reactionary. it's just not it's not even like there's no there's no underlying philosophy other than to just like poke the tiger <laughs> to disagree it's got to be neoliberal as well <laughs> i want more climate change. so we need to mine climate change both doesn't exist and is a good thing <laughs> we need to mine the shit it is not of, happening but i am glad that it is happening and sell all of public well i mean like sell all public property to like giant corporations i think that's what they mean by neoliberal um, but also there's going to be a god king. And, yeah, yeah. And Amazon, f- Amazon should own iceless Antarctica. And it should also be... Which, which is Hyperborea. It should also be fascist, so all of the giant corporations should also just be arms organs of the state. <laughs> this is new Hyperborea. Yeah, yeah. Join us, friends. Join us in our colonial pro-climate change, hyper-patriarchal, neoliberal fascist hyperstate where we melt Antarctica. Oh, and you need you need inverse ESGs. Inverse, so we actually, inverse ESGs. There are, there are laws. There are laws determining the upper limit of humane work conditions. You determine that everything in Iceland, Antarctica, minimum amount. There's of an slavery. upper limit to environment to environmental sustainability. Like if your business is too sustainable, you need you to start like just burning, burning tires, tires in your backyard yeah, or something like that. And we need to, to have make the, a bit less environmentally. We need to have the friendly. inversion of um, diversity, inclusion, and um, equity. So D, uh, diversion, d- diversity. Sorry, diversity, uh, equity, and inclusion. So we just need to. It needs to be a monoculture. There's no diversity. It just needs to be just one. You race. need the environmental degradation agency to <laughs> the environmental degradation like random audits. <laughs> Of, di- of different companies to see if they're dumping enough toxic waste <laughs> into waterways and things like that. Yeah, using like second generation nuclear reactors and just dumping dumping the waste, like pouring it pouring yeah. it onto onto penguins, like strapping penguins down, putting little gimp masks on them, and then pouring toxic <laughs> sludge on them. In new Hyperborea. And they, they also need to make sure that the workforce doing this has enough slaves in it. I mean, you need a certain proportion of slave labor. And, and otherwise, you're not all, meeting the quota. It's all run on Bitcoin. <laughs> it's run, it's on, run Bitcoin, on Bitcoin. Produced using the, dirt, the, the dirtiest, dirtiest energy production methods. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And none, none of these, like, new generation, like, hyper-efficient ASIC miners. Like, we're talking just the OG, like, 2014 burn as much fucking energy as we possibly can we're, we're, we're mining bitcoin at a loss in this motherfucker <laughs> the point is not to make bitcoin the point is to pollute the point is to destroy the world <laughs> so uh jack and levi for god kings forever of new hyperborea join us
Yeah, so nuclear Queensland is just a jumping off point to <laughs> yeah. new hyperbole. It goes crypto nuclear Queensland, step one. With, with negative ESG. <laughs> we, we just want to take, we want to take um, contrarianism and reactionary behaviour to its logical conclusion. <laughs> I'm so about this. And then we need to have like a, 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 a paper mill where we just like, it's just pay to publish and we just publish <laughs> shitloads of like Hegelian propaganda. <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah, well, yeah, exactly. And that's, that's the, that's the reactionary mindset in action because other people are running academic journals where they seek to have the highest standards of intellectual rigor. No, we we need to, to have destroy. a journal which aims to publish <laughs> the worst faith the stupidest, the, the most incoherent things that will actively, actively set back human knowledge. Yeah, actively malicious. The more obstructionist the theories, <laughs> the more they interfere with genuine knowledge creation, the more likely we are to accept them and propagate them. I think if, if, if we are going to go for the new Hyperborea thing, I think we're off to a good start. I feel like we would have at least like San Marzano and names would come with us. <laughs> they think just us four. Yeah, just the four of us on a little It'll boat. Just be down us four Antarctica. trying to destroy the environment in Antarctica <laughs> just, as much as we can, just attacking like a fucking glacier with a with a hammer. <laughs> 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 Conquest, colonizing Antarctica. Actually, that's a good approach to it. <laughs> the ice shelf just falls off, crushes us, <laughs> just kills us. <laughs> 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 it's on the news like on it's like in one local newspaper in Hobart or something it's like obscure podcasters die in strange quest to colonize Antarctica no we'll leave behind our mark though we'll have ra radicalized all the penguins there <laughs> and they will carry on our legacy we'll little Nazi penguins little fascist Italian fascist penguins exactly we'll have played we'll have played PewDiePie videos to all the penguins and that'll set them on on the path to becoming hard right extremists yeah amazing Anyway, where was I even reading from? Two two. Yes, there's climate change and the conceptual. Two two. Okay. Nowhere are the consequences of hypermasculine machismo braggadocio isomorphic identification with the conceptual penis more problematic than concerning the issue of climate change. Climate change is driven by nothing more than it is by certain damaging themes in hypermasculinity that can be best understood via the dominant, rapacious approach to climate ecology, identifiable with the conceptual penis. Our planet is rapidly approaching the much warned about two degrees climate change threshold, and due to patriarchal power dynamics that maintain present capitalist structures, especially with regard to the fossil fuel industry, the connection between hypermasculine dominance of scientific, political, and economic discourses and the irreparable damage to our ecosystem is made clear. Mm, mm, yes. Have you noticed with a lot of these sorts of things how the people will at once say that you know, masculinity and femininity are constructs, but then also gladly say that things they don't like, like capitalism and environmental degradation, are the effects of masculinity? So does it being a social construct mean that it's not real? In some sense? I find people tend to be very sloppy with this, how when it's convenient, they will say that these things aren't real and can be ignored. But then when it is convenient, even though they are social constructs, they have real effects in the world and should be taken seriously. 
and can be taken as causative agents. I find it, it just changes based on convenience. Well, again, like, I am trying to colonise Antarctica, so I'm pro-hypermasculine dominance of scientific, political and economic discourses <laughs> and the irreparable damage of our ecosystem. <laughs> what about melting the glaciers using pissing compost? <laughs> so just with the, the warm power of, of millions of people pissing on glaciers. Millions of... Uh, we can melt Sigma the ice caps. Chads pissing on Antarctica until it melts <laughs> into the Hyperborea. <laughs> we can just have millions and millions of slaves <laughs> that we force to have pissing competitions on ice shelves. I don't even think it'd work. I don't care if it works or not. That's not the point. In fact, the less efficient it is, the more I like it. <laughs> the better. Yeah, exactly. The more resources it consumes, the better. <laughs> Hilarious. Okay. Am I laughing too Destructive, much? Destructive, unsustainable, so much <laughs> unsustainable, hegemonically male approaches to pressing environmental policy in action are the predictable results of a raping of nature by a male-dominated mindset. This mindset is best captured by recognizing the role of the conceptual penis holds over masculine psychology. When it is applied to our natural environment, especially virgin environments that can be cheaply despoiled for their material resources and left dilapidated and diminished when our patriarchal approaches to economic gain have stolen their inherent worth, the extrapolation of the rape culture inherent in the conceptual penis becomes clear. At best, climate change is genuinely an example of hyperpatriarchal society metaphorically manspreading <laughs> into the global ecosystem. <laughs> They've got some good lines. They are both very obnoxious new atheists, but they have some very good lines. I love that. Metaphorically man-spreading into the global ecosystem fan. Fucking tastic. It's so good. <laughs> I love that. I've heard... Um, I've heard... I, I heard the word used virgin. Virgin deposits of mines. And I was so taken aback. Mm. I don't know. I was having a debate with, um, with my brother. And I love my brother bits, <laughs> but we have some disagreements about the environmental thing. And he was, uh, he was criticizing, um, you know, like mining companies and stuff. And he called them virgin deposits, like, like, un, you know, like untapped gold veins or undespoiled, undespoiled. And I, and I was like, I'd never heard that used before in that. Like, I was like, you just called, uh, like some rocks in the ground virgin. Like what? Like what? <laughs> that is so strange. But I think that's actually like how he just wants them wants them to be fucked by powerful phallic. I was like, that is right. Drills. They are virgins, and they're just waiting to be dicked down by some hyper neoliberal patriarchal giga chads like me. I'm going to come along. <laughs> not even a not even a not even in the mining industry. But I will start a mining company just so I can dick down the earth and get into the virgin deposits and destroy Gaia's cherry. <laughs> You're not doing it to produce value. You're just doing it for the performance. Yeah, I'm not doing it to, like, you know, I don't know, mine commodities to build a fucking civilization. <laughs> I'm just going to mine it just to fuck the earth and then just throw throw what I've mined into the ocean or something. Set it on fire. Shoot it into space. Shoot it, into sp- shoot it at the sun so it's Eat just completely, rockets. completely useless. Yeah, so it's completely <laughs> Just going to mine stuff on earth and send it into the sun. <laughs> <laughs> He's just going to destroy it. 
just just purely destructive Man, we, behavior. We really should. We should just mine. We should mine iceless Antarctica into just this hole in the ground, so that we can shoot all the mineral mineral wealth into the sun. <laughs> That'd be so good. Or what would be even even. I think we need to have a balance of like shooting things into the sun, but also I feel like there's an extra little like bit of fuck you if we just shoot it into the abyss. If we just shoot it like straight just into the par- like into space. perpendicular to like the plane of the solar system, you just shoot it down. <laughs> Not that there's a down when you think yeah, about we, all we of space time. We could probably try to find the <laughs> optimal path. Just we need to it. dedicate many resources to making nice big phallic telescopes to finding the optimal path where you can shoot resources mined from iceless Antarctica such that they will not meet anything. Like, what is the longest <laughs> distance we can find where they won't meet anything? <laughs> yeah, I, and I think another good target would just be, like, the galactic centre. Like just a really complex one would be like oh, yeah, yeah. slingshot it into the black hole. Gravity sling it off Jupiter at the galactic at the galactic center into the supermassive black hole. And then that would be a very destructive way, a very inefficient and resource intensive way to destroy as much of Antarctica as possible. <laughs> and whilst it's on the way, I reckon also we should uh <laughs> our rocket ship should be powered not by like high efficiency like pure oxygen fuels or some shit like that. No, I want... No, it should be a two-stroke engine. No, no, I want it to be fueled by Rexona. Rexona cans. We just blast it into the air using Rexona <laughs> so that it destroys the... What could be more masculine? So that it destroys... It could be powered by links. <laughs> links and Rexona, so... It's just shooting a cloud of... A so cloud that, of links getting lit on fire <laughs> at the back of it. So that it destroys the ozone layer on the way out. <laughs> <laughs> Also, 90, 90% of the, the rocket's mass needs to be dedicated to being speakers so that it can <laughs> fly through space while blasting, <laughs> blasting the most misogynistic rap you can find. It's just 21 seconds. It needs to be the ultimate expression the of the conceptual penis. I don't care if no one in space will be able to hear it. That's not the point. It's not the point. It gets discovered by aliens. So they think humans just love fucking Rexona. It's like, what the fuck is going on? And 21 Savage. (laughs) They take it back to their home planet and spend decades and decades (laughs) trying to work out what the Earthlings are trying to say (laughs) with the Rexona rocket. (laughs) And it's it's just full of, like, unprocessed... Just rocks and gold. <laughs> it's not it's a complete waste of time. Like a, a, a dead and penguin. Their, that's their been civilization like is, is, is progressive bliss. It's where there's no there's no sex, there's no gender, there's no oppression, there's no colonialism, there's no climate change, <laughs> there's none of that stuff. Yeah, yeah. But they eventually decode the, the Rexona <laughs> rocket. And the virus spreads. Yeah, the mind virus, the neo hyperborean mind virus. Jack and Levi just turn them all into neo liberal <laughs> fascists. It goes back. They fall into a dark age that lasts ten thousand galactic cycles. They get really into Andrew Tate all of a sudden. <laughs> they erect a statue, a planetary him, statue the, of Andrew the Tate. Ur Tate. <laughs> they, they look to the stars. They look to the Rexona rocket. And piece together the earth. The earth. They all start shaving their heads and doing kickboxing, <laughs> talking about the matrix. A religion starts where they start astral projecting into another plane where they can just talk to Andrew Tate. 
<laughs> he unplugs they, them they from the They commune with Ilna Selka, who like, <laughs> she's, she's like a switchboard operator who puts them into contact with Andrew Tate. The Ur Tate. I like that. It's just his head <laughs> floating in the abyss. Like, I'll keep reading. So, the, the, the deep reason for this problematic trend is explained, in its essence, by McElwain, where he writes, Pickett suggests that we have to choose between capital rationalism and cultural subcapitalist theory. Pickett, 1993. Mm. Contemporary capitalist theory, also known as neo-capitalist theory, derives its claim on rationalism directly from the hypermasculine focus in science and society that can be best accounted for by identification with mm. the conceptual penis. Paxton and Scammerin seem to agree, noting that neo-capitalist materialist theory holds that reality comes from the collective unconscious, but only if the premise of dialectic objectivism is invalid. If that is not the case, sexuality has significance. Toxic hypermasculinity derives its significance directly from the conceptual penis and applies itself to supporting neo-capitalist materialism, which is a fundamental driver of climate change, especially in the rampant use of carbon-emitting fossil fuel technologies and careless domination of virgin natural environments. We need not delve deeply into criticisms of dialectic objectivism or their relationships with masculine tropes, like the conceptual penis, to make effective criticism of exclusionary dialectic objectivism. All perspectives matter. One practical recommendation that follows from this analysis is that climate change research would be better served by a change in how we engage in the discourses of politics and science, avoiding the hypermasculine penis-centric take wherever possible. I really like how they start talking about, um, where is it, dialectic objectivism, which is just so obviously like, dialectic materialism, which is Marxism. <laughs> but saying that they don't like dialectic objectivism, it's just such good word salad satire. Yeah, that was uh, essentially incoherent. <laughs> so good. So good. I do think... They wrote it well in that it gets more and more and more incoherent as the paper goes on. I reckon they were having heaps of fun with this, hey? Where by, the, by the end, it's just slurry. <laughs> so three, conclusion. We conclude that penises are not best understood as the male sexual organ or as a male reproductive organ, but instead as an enacted social construct that is both damaging and problematic for society and future generations. The conceptual penis presents significant problems for gender identity and reproductive identity within social and family dynamics, is exclusionary to disenfranchised communities based upon gender or reproductive identity, is an enduring source of abuse for women and other gender marginalized groups and individuals, is the universal performative source of rape, and is the conceptual driver behind much of climate change. An explicit isomorphic relationship be exists between the conceptual penis and the most problematic themes in toxic masculinity, and that relationship is mediated by the machismo braggadocio aspect of hypermasculine thought and performance. A change in our discourses in science, technology, policy, economics, society, and various communities is needed to protect marginalized groups, promote the advancement of women, trans, and genderqueer individuals, including non-gender and gender-skeptical people, and to remedy environmental impacts that follow from climate change driven by capitalist and neo-capitalist over-reliance on hypermasculine themes and exploitative utilization of fossil fuels. Mm. Strong ending. Yeah, they Strong got conclusion. They, they dicked us down in our mind. They intellectually dicked us down. <laughs> <laughs> I found this article a lot so of funny. fun. That's I so remember funny. reading it when it came out. 
I think it, it was it was you or Ed, I think, who sent it to me shortly after it came out and say, this was before we knew it was a hoax and saying, like, look, what what the fuck is going on? I think uh I think it's it really, really succeeds as satire. This is wonderful satire. We should read, it's also um, free. Should... I'd recommend people read it. Yeah. Um, we should also read Transgressing the Boundaries Towards a Transformative Hermeneutics of Quantum Gravity. That'd be funny as well. I think that's yeah, quite Yeah, I think we well, should. Actually. That will be... That'll be more difficult given that neither of us know anything about quantum gravity. <laughs> so that's more one of the things where we read it and just have to assume that people who know more than us have disproved the mathematical claims. Well, I get the, the author disproved them himself. Well, by admitting it was a hoax, right? <laughs> that's not the sort of thing I'll be able to look at the equations in and go, oh, yeah, obviously. <laughs> yeah, obviously. That's this wrong. Is so obvious. <laughs> so this, I don't know. Second order differential equation doesn't make any sense. It's like, I don't know how to do the maths, anyways. Fuck you. So, um, fi- closing thoughts, Jack, Captain Jack. What do you reckon? Very funny. I'm glad that now we finally got an episode that'll get both of us cancelled because we make fun of left wing progressive stuff. Yeah, I'm just getting prepared to lose my job. <laughs> <laughs> this is what will finally force us. To, to inhabit the world of, of online personalities and try to make all our money this way. Uh, I just, um, I, uh, I hope to keep my job long enough to save up enough money to um, just uh, be able to last at least a couple of months to try to monetize the podcast. <laughs> Because we do need to make start, start making money at some point, <laughs> but yes, I do need to um try to minimize my uh, risk of exposure. I mean, fucking hell! Like seriously, if I uh, if if like if I get fired for doing this podcast, it's totally worth it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think we said anything that outrageous. No, 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 no. <laughs> except for except for new hyperborea. <laughs> <laughs> we need our new hyperborean yeah, agenda. Outrageous. That's a really good idea. <laughs> I think that will actually might, that actually might get me a job. <laughs> <laughs> that pitch shot working at the Claremont review. <laughs> yeah, I thought that was really funny. So on on the on the basis of this, I did do some digging around for other well, not other ridiculous scientific papers, but ridiculous non-hoax social sciences papers, and I did find a really good one that I think we should do an episode on the future called Glaciers, Gender and Science, a Feminist Glaciology Framework for Global Environmental Change Research from the University of Oregon, USA. There's a surprise. (laughs) And I just want to read out the last bit of the abstract. Merging feminist post-colonial science studies and feminist political ecology, the Feminist Glaciology Framework generates robust analysis of gender, power, and epistemologies in dynamic social ecological systems, thereby leading to more just and equitable science and human ice interactions. <laughs> I repeat, this is, this is a sincere article, and we should do an episode on this one, for more equitable human ice interactions. Yeah, I'd be down. That sounds funny. Like, wacky social sciences stuff is a goldmine. Let's do it. Let's do it. Um, okay, so that's a wrap, hey? 
go and read it. it. It's only five pages of actual writing. So go and read it. It's a bit of fun if you are. Uh, yeah. It's very funny. Uh, what else? Um, next episode? We haven't decided what on the next episode. What are we doing episode. next? We've got Sovereign Individual oh, yeah, coming shit. up. Is that next week? We'll do... I'm so pumped for the Sovereign Individual. Yeah. <laughs> it just plays into all my biases. <laughs> I'm... Just, yeah. It's just like I'm, I'm Jack and Levi. It. it is a good book. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Internet cryptocurrency. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Jurisdictions. Yeah, we should do that. Theory. We should do... Um, We'll do, we'll do, probably do something on Kenja, the Australian cult. Yeah, in Kenja. Or, or, um, <laughs> yeah, we'll do that. We should do Ernst Junger, like Storm of Steel or something. Why don't we do that after Kenja? Soon, because, st- I think yeah, we'll do Sovereign we do Individual, and then we return Kenja, to our, and then, um, Junger. Storm yeah. of Steel, and then back to our, um, normal, normal. Our what normal schedule. Normal or we can do no normal oh, we'll, we'll write to each other. Like, there's no, there's no consistency. About we just keep we just changing plug it. shit out of the fucking internet and say like, this is weird. There is no, there's <laughs> no consistency. <laughs> there's a very strong possibility that the roadmap we just sketched out will be completely different. Yeah, I guess we're kind of like, you know, we're adaptive. We're flexible. We're pivoting. We're always pivoting. <laughs> we're very flexible. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. <laughs>